Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. I'm Artemis, and in today's episode, the historian David Vivas shares some remarkable stories ranging from the Caribbean to the Indian subcontinent about how the world took on the British Empire. They're the subject of his powerful new book, The Great Defiance, which is out now. David, thanks so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. Um, I really appreciate I know you said you're in the middle of your dissertation um, marking, so I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm really excited. It's such a unique concept. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Well, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is um, your book, The Great Defiance, is about, um, in many ways, really challenging a particular idea about what the British, what the history of the British Empire was like and how the British Empire expanded and, um, and kind of challenging this idea that it was a foregone conclusion or that it was just something to do with how wonderful the British are that we just kind of managed it. And I wondered... Do you remember a kind of moment where you read a source, maybe it was a primary source, maybe it was a secondary source, where you thought, that's not right, that's not what, that's not like an accurate depiction of what happened, and it kind of prompted you to want to write this narrative? Yeah, uh, yes, absolutely, it's a, it's a great question. There, there are two things, actually. This is kind of um, an outgrowth in my previous research that I did during my PhD and my postdocs, and it was very much looking at, I'm a kind of South Asianist, that's my speciality, and looking at the way the kind of big superpowers of the Indian Ocean were able to quite easily absorb Europeans and kind of contain and control them. So I kind of looked at aspects of that economically and culturally. And so this is then like putting that idea on a much larger, grander scale, looking globally and comparatively and all that sort of thing. So, so I was a bit nervous sort of going out of the Indian Ocean and going beyond my my usual specialisms and and so a lot of this over the past sort of five years writing this and researching it has, has kind of been new and I, I didn't know whether the, the sort of model I had for Asia in which the English were, were kind of quite tightly regulated controlled by Asian powers like the Mughal Empire I didn't know whether that would work elsewhere especially in places like the Atlantic where the narratives are like you know completely the Europeans rock up and indigenous people are decimated by disease or colonized or overwhelmed by the trafficking of enslaved people and you know the Atlantic by the end of the 17th century is just like an English lake and and so I was a bit worried uh, that yeah this this kind of wouldn't work and so when I started to do my research um, there were sort of two documents that convinced me that oh yeah no that the people of the Atlantic world were also very powerful and resilient and could quite easily resist the growing English empire and reshape it and even sometimes defeat it and expel it and so um, one of them was looking at I mean I had um a kind of cursory understanding of the Caribbean, for example. Uh, when we think about the Caribbean during the early modern period, we reduce it to the sugar colonies and the European rivalry between the French and the British for control of the Caribbean and, and the trade in sugar and slaves. And there's almost no mention of the indigenous people that, that live there, almost no mention. And, you know, academically, there's been some very fruitful scholarship on this recently, uh, thank goodness. But but even in academic scholarship, we tend to focus on European rivalry and seeing this in terms of sugar um, trade and, and slave trade. And so to, to, to see this kind of 
indigenous people that that don't disappear and in fact almost over across 200 years cling on and survive and re resist the English and, and and you know this is like the crucible of colonialism the heart of colonialism the Caribbean the furnace of you know slavery and and, and colonial hegemony and so there was a document that that convinced me that yeah the, these are there are stories of power here indigenous power and resilience and resistance and and one of them is we'll actually be talking about a bit today a bit later is this this treaty i found in the atlantic world you rarely get treaties between the english colonists and indigenous people because it's they're so focused on conquest and colonization but there's an absolutely fabulous treaty from 1660 that essentially is a concession by the English that they've not been defeated by the indigenous people of the Caribbean, but they have to treat them as equals. And you don't often see uh, treaties that that do this. And, and, and so it's like a negotiated peace treaty between two equal powers, which I, I just like blew me away in the heart of English colonialism. You could have this dynamic and powerful people reduce the English to the peace table. And that so that for me was, uh, yeah, I've got something. I can tell this wider story beyond the Mughal Empire in India. And before we kind of get into your chosen year and chosen scenes, like I wanted to ask you as well about, I'm always really struck whenever I read global histories, how challenging it is to write a global history because it's history can be so overwhelming. You could pick just one village in England in one year and get, you know, and still have so much to get into or, and worry about not covering everything in enough detail. So how do you write a global history? Yeah, I think you've got, you've got to, and I think you're absolutely right, because you global when global history is done well, I think, it can be done at any level like you said you could take a village and tell its story globally or you could do a great global pastiche and be comparative and broad and so I think that's that's the great thing about global history it plays on so many different levels but when I think you know essentially I, I kind of set out to write like a 250 year history not of the whole world but of most of its continents across most of this period and and I knew it was ambitious and so what I what I try to do is is set kind of clear parameters you know not ashamed to admit that I had several approaches some of them didn't work and I remember when I submitted my first draft my editor was like oh let's let's rethink this approach because I think readers are going to get lost in the jumping around and so I, for me the great challenge in writing a global history uh, like this was to have a thread that readers could cling on to and although I'm jumping from West Africa to Japan I'm going then back across to the Caribbean there are threads that people can follow and so stories often there's great global connections between different stories so I start the book with Ireland for example and there are a lot of people involved in the colonization of Ireland like Sir Walter Raleigh and uh, Sir Humphrey Gilbert um, who who then use their ill-gotten gains from Ireland to then create ventures into North America. And so I kind of follow them there. And then we tell the story of colonization there. And a lot of the people that invested in colonial plantations and, and, and colonies in North America invested in the East India Company in Asia. So we would kind of so, so there were threads, kind of narrative threads, but they're also kind of thematic uh, threads that I sort of structured the book around. And I think so if you go in with kind of clear parameters, otherwise you can, you can just spiral out and it becomes too complex and and in that complexity, I think you can lose meaning. It's fascinating. And I think it leads us perfectly into our let's like, let's go, let's go around the world. So, David, if you could travel through time, um, what year would you like to travel to? Sure. Well, I would uh, I mean, I, I would first of all, I'd quickly go into like the turn of the 20th century, sort out baby Hitler. But then I would go off into uh, the year 1660. 
Okay, fabulous. And and why would you, I mean, you, as you said, you've written a 250-year global history. So why 1660 of those 250 years? I think that I mean, there are a number of reasons. One is 1660 for early modernists is important because we that's the period in which uh, the Stuart monarchy is restored in England. And so it's a pretty kind of key moment in the development of the crown and of parliament and you know, for, you know, for religious reasons and 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 uh, cultural reasons in England, and and the growth of of empire and trade, and and so it's it, it's kind of well known for that. But that's not the reason, really. I want to I want to look at it. The, the, when I was thinking maybe too long and too hard about this question, I thought, well, this, this is this is still a story, a history of the British Empire, although it's told from a different perspective. I'm still interested in how. The British Empire eventually you know, came to gobble up uh, a quarter of the world, um, 400 million people um, over this period. And and I thought that if I could think of one year that's really decisive, that the one year in which the development of the British Empire um, can be best defined by 1660 is probably a, a good a year as any to say this is where this is a key moment of of transition, of transformation. There are simultaneously things happening across the world that shape the British Empire in quite significant ways. Um, and so uh, 1660 gives us a chance to look uh, in Asia, to look in Africa and to look in the Atlantic, the three key theatres of English colonialism, and have a little peek at events that will then transform the British Empire over the next well several centuries, and and so I mean, sixty six is the year where things set the British Empire off on a course that it hadn't really been on before. Well, you've set it up beautifully. Let's go to our first scene. Where are we going to first in sixteen sixty? We are going to a place called the Deccan, which is in central India. And it's a very, the Deccan is a uh, very mountainous. And so you've got to think of this very rocky, mountainous, quite arid. One Mughal emperor calls it a hellscape. It's a, that is, that is a stereotype that's a bit dramatic, but it's very, everyone who, who lives there and, and, and goes there and you visit today, it is quite a treacherous landscape. Um, but up on the kind of, uh, up on this sort of tablet, there's nestled in the sort of northwest corner of the Deccan, uh, is the, the homeland of uh, people known as the Marathas. Uh, 1660 is kind of a very pivotal year for India, for the Mughal Empire, for the Marathas, and has a big knock-on effect for the East India Company. And could you tell us a bit about the Mughal Empire, for people who don't know? Yeah, so, certainly. So I would probably say the Mughal Empire is probably the world superpower at the time. There are other contenders, the Ottomans and, and, and you know, Tokugawa Japan, but the Mughal Empire, it, it, it begins in 1526. Uh, so a good 150 years before this point, it emerges from the ambitions of, of a chap known as Babur, who was the first Mughal emperor, descendant from the Mongols and from Tamerlane, Central Asia. And Babur kind of bursts out of his, his territory in Afghanistan, swoops down across the Hindu Kush into North uh, India. Unlike Central India, North India is very flat. The, you know, the Gangetic Delta is... It, it is is flat and, and that's kind of home to a lot of the sub subcontinent's major powers and he bursts in and he conquers the Delhi Sultanate and he goes on and his successes to establish the, the largest empire in the world in the sense of it's got the biggest population some 150 million people which in this time 
uh, in the early modern period uh, is enormous. If you think about the global population, polity that has roughly something like 20% of the world's GDP, it produce uh, the, you know, the world supply of cotton textiles, of, of precious goods. Its ports are the, some of the most important ports in the world, places like Surat. And culturally, it's a melting pot. This is one of the things I absolutely love about the Mughal Empire is that it welcomes outside influences because the Mughals themselves are a kind of Central Asian people and, and therefore they encourage sort of diversity and cosmopolitanness in their culture. They adopt a kind of Indo-Persian culture from Safavid Persia and they blend it with the unique cultures and religions of the Indian subcontinent. So you get wonderful languages like Urdu, which is a real mix of... Uh, of different languages. Um, there's religious toleration. They're a Muslim elite who govern a largely Hindu population, but they welcome Portuguese uh, Jesuits who are allowed to openly convert. There are Catholic churches. there, and, and so it's a real, you know, some of the courts of India, Agra, the capital at uh, this time, uh, are just kind of yeah, a real melting pot of science and knowledge and art and culture. And, 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 and I think when the English turn up on India looking for spices and textiles in 1608 to then later in 1611. They're seen as quite crude and, and foreigners, but you get these wonderful, colourful anecdotes of some of the early ambassadors kind of going to the court of Jahangir, who's the emperor at this point in 1611. And um, the, the emperors come, tell, tell me about your part of the world. Tell me about the English people. And you've got the Portuguese Jesuits sort of slagging them off and they don't, you know, the, uh, one of them calls King James I the king of farts. You know, they really want to undermine them in the eyes of the emperor, but the emperor can, can ignore them. And he, you know, he's like, tell me about this place called the Caribbean. I, I didn't think it existed before this. And so you've got this real interesting crossroads of knowledge and, and it's encouraged by the Mughals. They're really kind of curious people. And, but politically, militarily, it's not long until they spill out of North India and go on to conquer most of, uh, most of India. India, uh, back then, not being Indian that we know today, it included Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan and, and Bangladesh and parts of Burma, and then down to uh, the south of the subcontinent. And so they have real imperial ambitions. And by 1660, they're, they're eyeing up the Deccan, this massive size probably of Western Europe in the middle of the Indian subcontinent that is divided by many different powers. There are a number of sultanates, the uh, very fabulous wealthy rich sultanates, Golconda and uh, Bijapur, um, and then nestled in the northwest corner of the Marathas. So if they want to possess the Deccan, they're going to need to go through these guys first. And what happens? But um, So in to set our scene, January 1660, Probably the most magnificent emperor is sitting on the throne, this guy called Aurangzeb, which means world Caesar. Um, he's just won a war of succession against his brothers. He's killed them all, sibling love. He's thrown his father in prison, so he's usurped the throne. What happened is he was on the verge of leading the Mughal armies into the Deccan in 1658 when he heard that his father had fallen ill in Agra. And his brothers from other parts of India rush back home because they know that there's going to be a succession crisis. And, and Aurangzeb is the young one of the younger ones. And the younger brothers don't always fare well. If you don't seize the throne, you're probably going to get your eyes poked out and strangled, which happens. Uh, and so he allies with one of his other younger brothers. And together they take on separately the other brothers. They, they defeat them and kill them. 
And then Aurangzeb turns on his allied brother and defeats him and has him killed. Uh, by the time he gets to Agra, his father's recovering. He's like, oh, false alarm. Aurangzeb's all in. He's like, no, no. And he deposes his father. And well, he never deposes him. So technically, he's not actually. But he, he locks them up and he takes the crown and becomes Aurangzeb, the world Caesar. And he's like, right, I need. I want to get back to the big, you know, the big ambition the conquest of the deck and he thinks it will make the Mughal Empire the supreme power of the world you know he will be the victor and his prestige and his reputation will be unparalleled it will be a conquest for the ages so he does he he's you know consolidates his his power and a year and a half later he, he's ready there are troubles elsewhere in the Mughal Empire which he has to tend to so he sends his his uncle Shaysta Khan. Shaysta Khan uh, it comes from a very illustrious family that have always been senior ministers to the Mughal emperors. Um, and Shaysta Khan is getting on a bit now. He's kind of in his uh, 60s, I would say. But he's very loyal to his nephew, Aurangzeb. And as one of his chief ministers, he's put in com- command of the army some 150,000 troops, uh, one of the largest armies um, in the world at the time. And Aurangzeb essentially says, you know, go and go and conquer Deccan. Uh, and if you don't, this, you're in serious trouble. So he's got this kind of stress on his shoulders. He's like, I can do this. The Mughals have stereotyped the, the Marathas and othered them in the way that Europeans did to indigenous people. So they're you know, beasts, they're warlike, they're uncivilized, they're mountainous kind of bandits. They've completely and utterly underestimated them. And so in January 1660, Shaysta Khan crosses uh, into the mountain passes and makes his ascent up into the Deccan, uh, high up on the, the kind of plateau in central India. And at first it, it looks easy peasy. He's kind of gobbling up sultanates like it's no big deal. And he kind of turns to, to the western Deccan, to the uh, Swaraj, which is Maratha heartland. That's their word for it, Swaraj. And, and he makes short work of them. Towns and cities topple by 1661. He's in control of Pune, which is the uh, the capital of the, the Marathas. And by 1663, he's sitting there going, well, this is easy. But he's, he's about to have the shock of his life. So if I can just stop that, and then we're going to turn our perspective to the Marathas themselves. So the Marathas are, are a warlike people, and they've spent most of the past sort of 150 years, they're kind of agriculturalists, they're horsemen, but they've uh, been ruled by uh, the Sultanate of Bishapuru, who is the real kind of dominant power on the Deccan. Uh, and so they've been vassals, but they've gradually kind of worked their way up into important vassals. And a lot of the Maratha uh, nobility are now kind of chief ministers to the Bijapuri Sultan. And they enjoy a really good kind of uh, position, but they become in many ways over mighty subjects. They run the army, they run the treasury in the state, and they're not always entirely loyal or faithful. And a lot of the Maratha leaders in the past have kind of rebelled. There's one particular young prince who wants to throw off Bijapura rule and establish a Swaraj, a Maratha independent kingdom on the Deccan. And it's a guy called Sivaji. And Sivaji is absolutely kind of like... um, almost one of the founding fathers of, of modern India, according to, to a lot of people, especially Hindus in India today. And so he's a very kind of sacrosanct figure. But and so there's a lot of mythology around him, a lot of 
uh, very kind of fabulous myths and so you have to really wade through it but there's been some really good accounts left of his contemporary accounts especially some chronicles and uh, Mughal chronicles which are very hostile to Savaji but you can kind of read against them and 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 uh and so we get a real sense of kind of the struggle that the Mughals were in for against Savaji uh, and so yeah so Savaji defeats Bishopuri Sultanate on the eve of the Mughal invasion and um he thinks right I've, we've won independence and now we'll you know, will live free. And then a year later rolls in the Mughal armies. And Savaji is, um, he's young, um, he's ambitious. He's also very highly skilled. He's an excellent commander. He's got the the the, the war against Bijapur has really kind of united the Maratha houses. Society is divided by clans or houses that have always, their divisions have always meant that they've easily been conquered. But he's managed to unite most of them. And when the Mughal machine rolls in and steamrolls, rather than resist, Sivaji knows that they're going to use the terrain to their best advantage. So he withdraws the Marathas up into the, the rocky mountainous precipices. There are a number of mountain fortresses that, fortresses that are almost inaccessible. And so when Shaysta Khan rolls through the Swaraj thinking this is easy, he's actually not really facing any resistance because it's it's up into the mountains and and what happens is Sivaji waits for Shaysta Khan to become complacent to occupy the main cities and then he strikes and he he uh, launches a guerrilla war that hits the Mughal garrisons that um, uses the war of attrition to cut off their supplies and by 1663 they're in real trouble they're in a way become trapped in the Deccan and there's this insurgency led by by Savaji, they can never get to him. They can never get to his mountain fastness. And, and what happens in 1663, when morale is low and you know victory is elusive, Savaji leads a hand-picked group of people uh, and they go on a clandestine mission to kill Khan. And you have a fabulous account where they, they dress up in, in wedding kind of gowns and wear and they join this wedding party at night that's going on in Pune in the capital. Shaysta Khan has chosen Pune and, and Sivaji's palace as his headquarters. And the Marathas have been banned from the city. It's now a Mughal city. But uh, exceptions are allowed for special ceremonies and events like weddings. So there's a wedding going on. They join the wedding guests in this, in this kind of, in these costumes. And as the wedding festivities are going off and the music's loud and it's very dark, they peel off and they, and obviously they know every inch of the, the palace and they sneak in and and they use pickaxes from the kitchen to tunnel their way into the main chambers where Shaysta Khan's lying on the bed and they burst in um and there are no guards because he's he's asleep and they they burst in through the wall and Sivaji launches at Shaysta Khan and lops off his fingers in one of one of his hands and they kill some of the attendants and they kill Shaysta Khan's son Shaysta Khan throws himself out of a window to escape his his nemesis and he manages to survive and and, and Sivaji having missed the opportunity he's severely wounded him he's rattled him he's killed his son and they sneak out and they melt back into the night so in a way it's not a successful assassination attempt but it sends absolute shockwaves through the Mughal empire and it throws them into disarray Aurangzeb is humiliated Shaysta Khan is is sacked and sent back in humiliation to the capital morale collapses the the worn down army is now kind of leaderless and and so Sivaji uses that opportunity to sneak out of the Deccan and he takes 7,000 horsemen while the Mughals are distracted and he goes invades the Mughal empire and he 
attacks and sacks Surat. And Surat is the largest port in the world. It controls the trade of the Indian Ocean. Something like a million rupees a year um, go into the treasury from trade there. It's a city of 200,000 people. There are merchants from all across the world, from Europe, from Africa, from, from Asia. Um, and it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the, the jewel in the Mughal crown and he ravages it for four days straight. And he takes home, one English merchant suggests that they, they, they loot and take back to uh, the deck and something like 1 million pounds sterling in, in loot and, and wealth. Uh, well, the Mughal empire survives for another hundred years. A lot of people can kind of date this as, as the beginning of the end, possibly of the Mughal empire. So um, they, 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 don't, they don't evacuate the Deccan, but they're, they're ground down and they're kind of stuck there. And that war, lasts for another sort of 50 years. Uh, Aurangzeb spends the rest of his reign campaigning against the Marathas without really winning. He dies at the age of 89 in a saddle campaigning against the Marathas. The sack of Surat leads to a real drop in Mughal trade. One of the big side effects is Surat was the headquarters of the English East India Company in India. And it convinces them that they're no longer safe in the under the kind of um, protections of Mughals and that they have to find somewhere independent of the Mughal Empire to trade in India. So they abandon Surat because Savaja then revisits Surat again in 1670, 10, uh, well, seven years later, and sacks it for a second time. Uh, and what happens since then is Charles II has married Catherine of Braganza, the, a Portuguese princess, and part of her dowry is the island of Bombay off the west coast of India. And so the company purchases it from Charles and they set up their first independent colony in India. And obviously Bombay then emerges as one of the major kind of colonies of the British Empire. And so, but it, but it's an interesting way in which it's not anything the English are doing to develop the empire. They're essentially reacting to the major shifts in power that are happening in places like uh, Central India. The beginning of the end for one empire and the beginning of a new empire, the Maratha Empire, goes on to conquer uh, much of India and defeats the, the British in a, a spectacular war in the 18th century which prevents a British hegemony for another sort of 50 years. And so, and if you can pinpoint the beginning of that process, I think the Mughal invasion of the Deccan, which they never entirely accomplish, is probably the start of that. Wow. I mean, what an amazing story and so brilliantly told. I mean, thank you so much. I, 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 was, I was, as you were telling it, I was kind of thinking like, I don't even want to know how the British are involved. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> no, no, no. I kind of thought it, they seem... I guess that was going to be my question is that um, the British do seem are, are quite irrelevant and are they are irrelevant in this story. It's not about them having a role to play. It's like you say about them reacting to other things that are going on. They, they do it. And I would and this is the, the narrative of the British Empire is, is always one of you know, centrifugal. The British are pushing out and they're doing this, but they are very reactionary. They are, uh, especially in places like Asia, where they're very marginal. Their presence are, on, are literally on the margins of the great powers and their trade is um it's becoming more and more important but it's not you know it's not anything like some of the trade that uh, the Mughal Empire has with Persia or the Ottoman Empire or, or, or Southeast Asia and so they are they are marginal often in their own story and so we see the founding of Bombay is the beginning of the British Empire in Western India and actually they're kind of fleeing the power of the Marathas and actually what happens is they move to Bombay and they say right from Bombay we will you know conquer the rest of India this is going to be a new Christian Western colony all of this sort of thing and, and actually what happens is uh, Sivaji manages to to fight the Mughal Empire to a standstill, and they sign a peace treaty. 
And that allows Sivaji to then to focus on the coast of India, the west coast of India, and he expands his rule. And his borders then come up against Bombay, and they're separated by a, a harbour. And what happens is uh, Sivaji occupies several small islands in the bay that separates Bombay and the, and the mainland. And the company uh, go to war with uh, Sivaji. <laughs> and it's completely tragic. And they are defeated very easily. And they are forced to become vassals of, of the Maratha Empire. And part of the treaty is that they have to protect the river entrances into uh, mainland India that would make the Marathas vulnerable. And they have to promise not to ally with the Mughals against the Marathas. And, and so they are essentially yeah turned into Maratha vassals against their will and it's a they completely lose this war it's really embarrassing and what happens is the Mughal Empire says, no, we're not accepting this you know the East India Company is our is our vassal and so they send their navy and they turn Bombay into a Mughal naval base from which they launch attacks on and so Bombay is is not an English colony it's it's kind of a contested space between the Marathas and the Mughals in their in a new war that kicks off and and the English essentially say our independence has evaporated and we're just onlookers on this struggle for power. And what happens is it goes so disastrously that in the 1680s, the English on Bombay mutiny and they throw off company rule and they declare independence. And the company has to send out its fleet to crush the rebellion and bring Bombay up into its own rule. And it goes from one kind of catastrophic event to another. And it takes another century for Bombay to really emerge as a, as a solid English colony. Sometimes it can take a century or more. That's not really a story of success. It takes them, you know, 250 years to contest this constellation of non-European cultures and powers that they encounter in the early modern world. And we often just jump to the Victorian period and an empire upon which the sun never set. And we forget this 300 year period of very mixed results that, if anything, demonstrate the power and resilience of non-Europeans rather mm -hmm. than you know, the rising European empires. Hello, it's Peter here, and it's time for a word about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Spring is now in full swing. The days are getting longer, and it's the ideal time of year to get out exploring. In fact, as I speak, that is exactly what Ace are doing. To give you a sense of the range of tours they conduct, let me tell you about their ones for June alone. You can cruise along Czech rivers with them and enjoy the music and art of Prague. You can head further east to tour the citadels of Transylvania. If music's your thing, then you can head to the Bach Festival in Leipzig or the Olbra Festival in Suffolk. Then there's tours to all the charming corners of the British Isles, to the St Magnus Festival on Orkney, or to view Irish castles, or to discover Roman Anglesey, or to learn about the churches of Norfolk, or the artists of Cornwall. If you're after a bit more sun than our temperamental islands can safely promise, then you could always jet off to learn about Northern Greece with the expert guide, Andrew Wilson. Find a tour that's perfect for you at www aceculturaltours.co.uk Holidays for the culturally curious. I'd love to go to our next scene and to meet another um, another people, another indigenous, uh, well, an yeah, another 
kingdom, I guess, that also are able to really, really challenge the English. So where would you like to go for our second scene in 1660? So we're going to cross the world and we're going to go a few months ahead. We're going to go to spring, to March 1660, and we're going to go to the Eastern Caribbean, the Lesser Antilles. So you might be familiar with the islands that, you know, Barbados and and Guadeloupe, Dominica, um, St. Lucia, St. Kitts. English colonisation of the Caribbean starts in quite early in the 1620s. And in 1623, uh, the English are interested in the in the Caribbean because they do a lot of trade there, uh, stretching back to the 1560s and 70s, privateers that were f- that were fighting the, the Spanish and capturing Spanish ships in the age of the Armada would then stop off at the islands and uh, you know resupply and do a bit of trade. And they found them useful that they could be useful bases in stepping stones towards North America and to help consolidate English presence in in the Caribbean. Uh, they're looking at the success of the Spanish Caribbean. The Spanish have conquered the uh, Western Caribbean, the Greater Antilles, you know, uh, Cuba and uh, and uh, Hispaniola and those sorts of islands, um, Jamaica. And they've had a lot of success in uh, uh, cash crops like tobacco and cotton and indigo. And and, and they're kind of uh, interested in, in setting up plantations. So that's from the 1620s, they eye up the Eastern Caribbean. The people they've been dealing with there, uh, in the indigenous people, uh, they're known as the Calinago. Now, in history, we often dismiss them as the Caribs, which is a Spanish term for you know, these cannibalistic people. The Spanish tended to define the people of the Caribbean as Taino, the peaceful people that they could easily subjugate, uh, and those that they couldn't subjugate and that resisted them, they called them the Carib, fierce cannibalistic people. And the English use these Spanish accounts and stereotypes, which gives them a terribly skewed idea about who the Calinago are. And there are no, no such people as the Caribs. The, they identify themselves as the Calinago. And they've been in the Eastern Caribbean for centuries, uh, as most of the people of the Caribbean migrated up from kind of the Amerindian people of South America into Eastern Caribbean. The Calinago, I just fell in love with, with this culture when researching the book. So we define the Caribbean uh, like the trade winds across the Atlantic that move things. That's a very European perspective. Yes, the trade winds define European movement into the Atlantic. But actually, the Caribbean is defined by its currents, its local currents. And and the Kalanaga are highly mobile people. They have islands that they settle, islands like Dominica, they call Waita Kabuli, St. Kitts or St. Christopher, they call it La Amiga. These are the indigenous names, St. Lucia and uh, Guadeloupe. They're, they're the kind of key settled islands, but they also the other islands of the Caribbean are part of their wider ecosystem that they visit and they may maintain gardens to grow vegetables on one island. One island is excellent for hunting certain lizards. Another island is great for fishing. And so they, they move around constantly on these absolutely fabulous canoes. They're the size of a tree. Sometimes they take a whole year to craft. They can carry 40 people and they zip around on these currents. They've kind of mastered the knowledge of the currents and they can use them almost like highways. They zip along them and sometimes they can be between islands in a matter of hours. They can traverse the whole Eastern Caribbean sometimes in a few days. And their culture is, I wouldn't say it's quite egalitarian. Uh, It's not, it's certain there are important gender barriers for example women do most of the work the men tend to indulge in 
flute playing and daydreaming, according to some observers. Um, they spend a lot of time covered in paint and, and they seem to be more recreational. So it's the women that do a lot of the manufacturing, the crafting of hammocks and baskets, and they do a lot of the agricultural work. Uh, they grow tobacco, cotton. These are the main things that they trade with Europeans. They have developed a very warlike society in response to Spanish invasions for over a century, which they defeated. And in fact, took the war to the Spanish and would regularly raid the Spanish main. But their society is also one built upon culture and peace and um, they have fabulous ceremonies. One that, that Europeans just saw through this idea of the Carib and being kind of cannibalistic and being kind of fierce. And, but actually they developed a highly sophisticated and responsive defensive system. Their emphasis was on trading and peaceful relations and they would extend hospitality to visiting ships or sh in people who are shipwrecked. But any sign of attempting to settle in Kalinago Islands would be met with a fierce and aggressive response. And so some of the, before the 1620s, some attempts to kind of settle. So there's one ship that was blown off course and ended up in St. Lucia. Uh, they were trying to settle a colony somewhere in South America, uh, 70 or so Englishmen, and they and they say, well, let's set up a colony here. And the Kalanaga kind of indulge them for about a week and extend their hospitality. And then they realise the English start bringing their luggage off and setting up a... And they're like, oh, no, absolutely not. And so they massacre the English, uh, send the survivors off in a canoe to set adrift. And, and so they can be very hospitable and very friendly. But the moment there's a sign that their independence is being encroached upon that highly sophisticated defensive system kicks in. And so what happens is in 1620, the, the English uh, begin a colony on uh, what we know as St. Kitts, the island of Limeager, about 15 of them. Uh, the, the local chief is happy to indulge them. He sees them almost like a small shipwrecked kind of community and the English set up a small kind of camp and he welcomes them. And it's this guy, uh, Sir Thomas Warner. He's the kind of founding English colonist in the Caribbean and he's got a wife and children in England, but he also um, establishes a sexual relationship with a Kalanago woman, uh, who we only know as, as the word Barb. And, and the English are kind of mingling freely. But what happens is two years later, in 1624, a whole shitload of colonists turn up and suddenly the English camp is now 300 people. They're building a fort that the Kalanago Islanders respond and they call together an inter kind of tribal coalition that descend on Limeager to, to defend it. And the English get word of this. And instead of kind of evacuating, they decide to, to strike uh, a preemptive strike. So they wait until the Kalanago are having a celebration. They're kind of drunk in the celebration and it's nighttime and they're sleeping. And the English gather a hundred people together, surprise them in their beds and slaughter them and completely massacre the Kalanago, the chief Kalanago village. Uh, they don't, they don't kill all of them. There are some 2000 who survive and they, they battle the English and the French who have also set up a settlement. They have very poisonous arrows and they do a lot of wreck a lot of damage and havoc amongst the English and French. But eventually English and French guns prevail. And as the Kalinago begin to flee, rather than allowing them to retreat, the English French cut them off, trap them in a ravine and slaughter all 2000 of them. And the accounts are that the, the heaps of the body uh, reached the top of the ravine. It was just so dense. So they essentially wipe the Kalinago out of the island of St. Kitts and they partition it between the English and the French. And, and then the colonisation begins that you can kind of begin there. But even that, it's not straightforward. It takes 40 years for the English to contest other islands. So they settled Barbados because it's it's actually unoccupied. It's about 100 miles away from the main island chain in the Caribbean. 
and the Kalinago had long since stopped using Barbados. But they uh, settled colonies on Barbuda and, and Nevis, uh, Montserrat. But Kalinago refused to, to, to allow that. And what they do is they launch annual raids on the English settlement. So on Antigua, for example, a small English settlement clings on on the, on the leeward side, the kind of the, the western part of the island. But uh, the Kalinago remain on the, on the windward, the eastern side. And they launch annual raids and they reduce these English settlements to, to sources of Kalinago plunder and captives. And uh, the English are writing you know, back home, you know, someone please help us. We've been reduced to tributaries of the Kalinago. And I think that's a fantastic subversion of how we often think the English with the indigenous people, that the indigenous people are the victims, but indigenous people were powerful and they were capable of rendering Europeans into victims. And, and so these annual raids kind of kept the English to the margins of the Caribbean islands. And so the English settled the north and they settled Barbados, but the heartland of the Eastern Caribbean remains in, in Kalinago hands and they contest every single square inch that Europeans attempt to colonize. And there's a fabulous attempt, uh, uh, account in this by the 1650s of the English trying to settle a fort on St. Lucia in the heartland of Kalinago territory. And the Kalinago uh, communities um, smoke them out by burning chilies and they burn the eyeballs of the English. The English are sent reeling, they can, they, they're blinded by these uh, burnt chilies. And so you've got all these interesting anecdotes, but after 40 years, by the 1660s, English expansion is, is stalled. And other than a cluster of islands to the north and Barbados, they've essentially, you know, the Kalinago have retained most of their independence. And I think that that just shows that, you know, the, we associate the Caribbean with the beginning of the English empire, with sugar plantations, with the slave trade, but actually it was a highly contested space for over half a century. And that brings me to my, to my scene that I want to set. So by the 1660s, uh, the spread of sugar cultivation. So when the English first colonised the Caribbean, they focused on tobacco, cotton, indigo, quite profitable goods. But what's happened is in Brazil, uh, the Portuguese and the Dutch have cultivated sugar and sugar is probably the most valuable commodity in the world at this point. Um, and the Dutch and the Portuguese have become fabulously wealthy because of it. Uh, and the English learn uh, the technique of cultivating sugar and they import it first of all into Barbados and then it spreads. And suddenly these kind of, you know, the Caribbean islands are really the tips of sunken volcanoes and these small specks of sunken volcanoes, which are sometimes no more than 50 square miles, are suddenly the most valuable specks of territory anywhere in the world in the early modern period. And so they can't be fighting the Kalinago, they can't have the Kalinago raiding plantations and the Kalinago kind of uh, looting these, it's become too valuable. So the English and French get together in, in March and they decide to send a delegation to the Kalinago leaders to come to some kind of peace treaty. You don't see peace treaties really with indigenous people. That's not something that tends to happen. And it speaks to the power of the Kalinago and their ability to resist the, the English and French. And so 11 elders, 11 leaders of the Kalinago people, there's no kingdom, there's no centralized state. They're communal, they're based on communities, several on an island. Uh, there's inter-island cooperation. It's a very loose autonomous kind of confederation of communities but they're able to come together in times of war and extremity and they're able, they've got a system where they elect officials to deal with foreign policy and those sorts of matters so they elect these leaders and they uh, the 11 leaders visit the western side of Guadeloupe. Guadeloupe is the main French colony but it's still partitioned with the Kalinago 
which is not something uh, obviously we, we usually hear about. So they, they visit the English and the French in Guadeloupe and they go to the governor's house and they sit down with them and they thrash out a, a treaty, a peace treaty. And it's an astonishing document and I alluded it, uh, to it in the beginning of, of our talk. And it's, uh, it's a document of parity. And in fact, it may even be, if not quite a European defeat, there's certainly major concessions and there's a sense of desperation that the English and French need this war to come to an end so they can reap the benefits of the sugar trade. Um, and so some of the, well, the first concession is that, that they agree to a, to a peace and to stop fighting. They also agree to release all of their Kalinago captives and they agree to, to respect the independence of a Kalinago heartland that begins in Dominica in the north all the way down to Tobago in the south. So about three quarters of the Eastern Caribbean. And the Europeans promised not to violate that territory. And the Kalinago on their behalf, uh, as well as agreeing to, to cease fighting, they agree to release their European captives, um, but there's no limit on where they can settle. So their independent heartland is guaranteed, but they're also free to settle outside their Kalinago territory. So in a way, yes, they're, you know, some islands have been lost to the Europeans and that has disrupted and shrunken their kind of maritime world. But ultimately able to preserve their, this kind of independent homeland, you know, in the crucible colonialism in the Caribbean, uh, in the face of unprecedented forced migration of enslaved people from West Africa, which means that the Kalinago are, are heavily outnumbered now in the Caribbean. There is something like by the end of the 17th, 17th century, 40,000 European colonists crammed onto these islands. Almost every square inch is given over to sugar plantations and something like a quarter of a million of enslaved people. On the island of Nevis alone, a thousand African children are enslaved and forced to work all day in the sugar fields. So it's become this hellish landscape of human suffering and exploitation. But then there's also this Kalinago heartland where it, they liberate enslaved people and they absorb them into their culture and society. And they're able to deal as equals with Europeans. And I just think it's a remarkable story of endurance and survival in the face of this kind of unprecedented challenge to their society. So I, I think that's a pretty cool moment in history to visit. A hundred percent, yeah. Like you say, a fascinating people. And I love the description of the canoes zipping around the islands. And it's great because, you know, these canoe fleets during the war, the Kalinago were really, really adept at playing the Europeans off one another. So they would join with the French to attack the English. And in one particular war where the English are kind of forced to abandon almost all their colonies, they all have to cram onto uh, Nevis and St. Kitts, uh, something like 5,000 English colonists. And the Kalinago war fleet is something like 80 canoes, 1,500 people, and they fight alongside the French Navy against the Royal Navy. So you see all these kind of images in the Age of Empire, the Royal Navy, the French Navy, then you've got this fabulous Kalinago war fleet that the English write home that they're more scared of the Kalinago than they are of the French. And I just think that, and you'll, you'll never see an image of a, a Kalinago war fleet fighting the Royal Navy because that would never happen in this age of, you know, cultural uh, stereotyping you know they did not want to envisage indigenous people as as capable or powerful but but that happened and um and i just think that you know their command of their knowledge of the currents and their in the way they used the caribbean sea um just gave them that kind of advantage and it kind of often rendered european superiority in shipping and, and technology completely redundant 
You mentioned um, the kind of increased presence of enslaved people in the Caribbean at this time, and I think that leads us on to our third and final scene that we're going to in 1660. So where are we? Where are we going to last? We're going to go to the end of the year. We're going to go to December uh, 1660, and we're going to zip across. Well, we're going to go into Europe, and we're going to zip across to London, and then we're going to go down to the west coast of Africa. The English involvement in the trade in enslaved people uh, was very old. It goes back to the 1570s, the various slaving voyages of people like Francis Drake and uh, and those kinds of people stretch back to the 1570s when Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, uh, invested in these voyages. The Portuguese had been active in, in, in purchasing enslaved people in West Africa and then transporting them over to colonies in in South America to work on plantations, to work as domestic uh, enslaved people in, in colonial households. And it had been kind of a, a, a been going on really since the 16th century. English participation at the end of the uh, 16th century is quite negligible, it's very small, but it's seen as quite lucrative. And what happens is uh, independent kind of traders, British merchants, uh, English merchants coming out to West Africa, uh, around 1640s, really 1650s, as the colonization of the Caribbean is gathering a pace and as sugar cultivation is introduced into places like uh, Barbados and uh, St. Kitts, the demand for labor becomes massive. Now, the English enslave the Kalinago, uh, those that they can capture, they enslave. Um, they enslave indigenous Americans in North America and ship them into the Caribbean. So, and they also use indentured labor from Europe. So what's also going on at this time is the colonization of Ireland and through several devastating wars and famines, the English forcibly transport something like 30, 40,000 Irish to the Caribbean. They're not slaves, they're indentured labourers. The conditions are, are quite grim. Um, they're often done under duress. They, they're employed for a certain term uh, and then they're free and then they often settle in the Caribbean and set up their own plantations. Um, so there's a difference. So as, Although that results from the suffering in Ireland and indentured labourers are treated appallingly, they ultimately are human. But the need for enslaved labour, uh, and, and this is slavery unlike elsewhere in the world, European slavery is chattel slavery. So the people are rendered from being human to property uh, and it's hereditary. Their children's children's children will be enslaved. And so they're stripped of their rights, they're dehumanised and, and they become the property of their masters. And, and so this kind of labour is much cheaper. You know, these people can be worked to death if necessary. And in places like uh, West Africa, they are available in the kinds of sizes that indigenous Americans and indigenous Kalanago are not. They, their, their populations quickly shrink in the face of English colonialism. And so the English increasingly are turning to West Africa as a source of enslaved labor for these new sugar plantations and, and colonies. And so uh, the trade is kind of haphazard. Um, it's dominated mostly by the Portuguese and the Dutch. Um, and there are several companies that are set up that attempt to kind of pull Brit uh, English sources, resources together and try and establish a kind of proper base in West Africa to take advantage of this. And, and they do, they set up a fort. There's various, the Guinea Company, uh, that this kind of part of the West Coast of Africa is often uh, known as the Guinea Coast, uh, sometimes the Gold Coast and, and the Slave Coast increasingly. Um, but none of these are particularly successful and they can't really compete with other Europeans. And so when Charles II is restored 
to the English throne after a period of republicanism with the, following the Civil War, Oliver Cromwell sets up the Protectorate and then the Republic, uh, sorry, the Republic and then the Protectorate. But Charles II is restored after Oliver Cromwell's death in 1660. And with the restoration of the monarchy, there's a concerted effort to use the crown's power to give England a kind of uh, a, a lead in the trade and enslaved people, mostly because to kind of fund the glorious restoration and the restoration monarchy, Charles and his brother James have this kind of glorious, uh, these glorious ambitions, uh, glorious in the sense of rather ambitious, not as in good, to use uh, increasingly use England's growing Atlantic trade to to help fund crown revenues to expand English power and 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 to help the funding of you know new palaces and and all that sort of thing. So there's a concerted effort to 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 push England into the lead in the Atlantic. And so they uh, they use their the crown's power to launch a, a new company. And and in 1616 December, Charles II and James, the Duke of York, officially provide a charter to a group of merchants. Uh, and the company is known as uh, the Company of Royal Adventurers trading to Africa um, and they launched this company and it's its focus isn't just enslaved people also there's a the other great commodity of of the west coast of Africa is gold um, as well as as well as cotton uh, cotton goods but it's enslaved people increasingly Charles and James have their eye on to feed the growing plantations in the Caribbean and the wealth from that has kind of transformed the Netherlands and Portugal it doesn't quite work out at first. There's a war with the Dutch and, and that kind of decimates English prospects on West Africa. And there's a bit of kind of corruption and, and, and there's a few false starts. So in 1663, they reconstitute it, the company. And again in 1672. So it goes through some organisations. But the company they launched in 1616, in December, essentially becomes the Royal African Company which becomes the largest trafficker of people in the world anywhere. So uh, under the Royal African Company, something like 3.5 million enslaved people are trafficked from West Africa to the colonies in the Caribbean and elsewhere in South and North America. Uh, and so it begins in that December in 1660. It's given full royal backing and involvement. So we often have a rather sanitised history of the crown and it's always kind of sat apart from the wicked empire. Uh, there's a lot of research being done at the moment right now um, on the Crown's involvement in the trading and slave people that's shedding light on the long history of the Crown's involvement in colonialism. Uh, and so we see that by the fact that Charles launches the company, he invests in it. His brother, the Duke of York, is, is its governor. He manages the company. He has his initials branded onto the skin of enslaved people. DOY, the Duke of York, and and so they're they're heavily involved. Um, and the trade in slave people takes off. In the last 25 years of the 17th century, after the company's launched, something like a quarter of a million of enslaved people are sent to the Caribbean. And by the end of the century, by the late 1690s, England, the the the, the Royal African Company becomes a leading European uh, trafficker in enslaved people. And so I thought that was a, a really interesting uh, scene to pick because it's really the beginning of the later 18th century transformation of the empire into an empire of slavery and sugar and, uh, and exploitation. And it begins there in, in 1660, like so many of these inflection points that we visited, which sets off the British Empire in these different directions, some that show indigenous power. Um, some that show the way the non-European world shapes the British Empire in places like India. And I think this last one is a really good example of that. The narratives that 
contemporaries to this period have spun and that historians have subsequently spun that you know this is a empire trade of exploration of you know we gifted people democracy and and you know the english literature and cricket and uh, but you know this is the foundation of the british empire it's, it's founded on the the kind of mass enforced movement of enslaved men women and children and i think that the royal african company it becomes really effective because of the backing of the crown and the support of the crown that legitimacy attracts massive investment and the royal african company's history is interesting but it, it isn't just one of the victimization of 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 african people that's obviously a large part of this narrative there are also stories of as I say, I'm a bit of African power and resistance in that massive narrative of suffering and exploitation from resisting, getting onto British ships to once they're on British ships, organising uprisings that seize control of those ships, uh, rarely successfully, uh, always ended in uh, horrific bloodshed for enslaved people. But even once they get to the British colonies, many of them able to liberate themselves, to run away, to find refuge in the arms of Kalinago communities, that they escape to others that lead full-scale rebellions on the island of jamaica uh, a woman called queen nanny uh, an akan woman from west africa queen nanny of the maroons she escapes slavery goes to the kind of central uh, mountainous area of jamaica and leads a rebellion and establishes a, a, a free maroon kingdom in the heart of jamaica which the british send armies to try and crush but they're never successful and queen nanny defeats them and sets up nanny town the capital of this free so even in the heart of english colonialism on places like jamaica african people are there are powers of strength and power and, and resistance and what happens is again a bit like with the kalanago people the british come to a treaty with the maroons the runaway slaves and they recognize them as an autonomous state and i just think that's a remarkable achievement so it's important we don't lose sight of the victimhood of non-european indigenous people which is really the key narrative but we don't have to just render them as passive victims, then that strips them of their power and, and their agency. And I think it's as important as that we tell stories like this about the power and the resilience, mostly because then it refutes Victorian and 20th century narratives about non-Europeans as being backward and uncivilized. And no, it's what the British took from those people. These were successful societies. They were flourishing, they were wealthy, they were resilient. And they were not easily conquered. But it's kind of historical scholarship that then has put a kind of veil over that and has rendered these people as these kind of passive victims of English superiority. And I think what I hope this book does is restores a bit of balance to that story. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. And I just wish that we could stay here all day and talk about it because it's obvious that they're just, once you once you kind of pick a, a moment and a, and a place and a people, there's so many amazing stories, fascinating stories of dramatic and not always kind of happy, but very powerful and, and interesting and a really brilliant corrective to more traditional narrative about British Empire which I really appreciate you sharing with us. It's my pleasure I just think it's uh, you know we're talking about the scope of global history and how you do it well I think this podcast is a great way to do the patchwork of human history as you pick those scenes I think it's a masterful way to get into it so it, it's been a real pleasure thanks for the opportunity. Oh I'm so pleased well before you head back to the present you are allowed to take a memento with you from 1660 so what would you like to bring? I would like to bring uh, a cup it's a silver cup. It's a silver cup from the indigenous American country of Seneca Moco. It's home to the Powhatan people. And when the English arrive, uh, a kind of island in the James River in what we would today call Virginia, 
they set up their fort on Jamestown. And one of the things they do is they they go around the kind of local villages and they've brought they've not brought any agriculturists or farmers to set up their colony. They've brought mineralogists and and sons of wealthy people because they think that there's gold mines and they're going to get rich quick. And they find very quickly, actually, there's no minerals there. There's no gold and they're all starving to death and they have to actually go out to the indigenous villages and beg for food. You, what you don't want is starving, heavily armed Englishmen running around your country because uh, the English very quickly turn violent and they demand what they want. And so they use kind of trifle incidents to to start wars and to, to, to take what they want by force. And in one of these villages, they accuse the indigenous people of having stolen a silver cup from the English baggage train. And the, the, the chief of the village has absolutely no idea what anyone's talking about. And, and historians have debated this a lot but the idea often in our Algonquin society is about this kind of reciprocal relationship is, OK, we give you food, but there must be an exchange. And the English wouldn't give anything in return. They would demand. And so the idea is that, well, they took this silver, alleged silver cup. And that was a perfectly that's how you establish, you know, you know, establish good faith and a, and a lasting relationship. So they were entitled to something. And the English, it was the English that were breaking those kind of cultural conventions uh, and diplomatic kind of relationships. Anyway, the English use the excuse of this. They don't notice. They go away and they, then they they realise this cup's missing. And so they revisit the village and wipe it out as really as a display of power to cow, to kind of you know deter the rest of the villagers and to demonstrate English power. And that kind of, you know, sets the pattern for English colonialism in in the Virginia kind of tidewater region. So I think I would like to take that silver cup because I think it's it kind of symbolises that what the early English Empire was about. It wasn't about trade or exploration or you know anything passive or peaceful like that. It, it really is. You know, empires are constructs of coercion and violence and control. They're not. You don't join an empire through consent. You know, empires subjugate, and yet we've done such a marvelous job over our three hundred years in this country of spinning the British Empire as some benign, benevolent force. Um, and I think that we have to, and, you know, we can celebrate things that Britain achieved, like, you know, defeating Nazi Germany or, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the modern medicine, that they can be celebrated, but don't, we can't forget the genesis of, of empire is colonialism. And it's a violent one based on coercion and exploitation. And you've got to go back to these very early people that were caught in the crosshairs of English colonialism and are no longer, you know, their entire cultures are wiped out. Uh, and that once upon a time, the world was a diverse place of all these interesting cultures and religions and societies that, that the English empire replaced and then retold that story. And I would like that cup as a reminder of that there may be democracy because of Britain and the spread of the English language, but it really begins with that violence. And I think that we need to, that's something we need to focus on more. Mm, that's a really powerful memento and very symbolic as well so not necessarily one you'd might want to display in your house but yeah no but a good reminder I think but a good reminder well David I can't thank you enough it's been so interesting speaking to you about your book and um wish you all the best with all of your yeah the many other podcasts and <laughs> other bits of promoting that you have to do over the next few weeks I've really enjoyed it thank you that was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to David Vivas about his new book, The Great Defiance. It's published by Penguin and is available to buy now. As ever, you can head over to our website, tttpodcast.com, for more information about this episode and any of our others. But until next week, goodbye.